Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Alexander Hamilton, future founder and lawgiver, he was just a young aide of General George Washington in the American Revolutionary War. He kept the books, the financial records of the division, kept a pay ledger showing income and expenses. Now, a lot of people reach that kind of level in their career, and they're satisfied, and they stay more or less at about that level. They advance kind of laterally. Maybe they go on to some civil service position or enter the private sector, stay a kind of low-rank officer. The point is, only a very select few of the many camp aides and junior officers go on to become something like the general. If you want to be one of those people, the ones who make the most of that opportunity to level up, what do you do? Well, while they were camped in a particularly long and hard winter at Valley Forge, Hamilton, again, a young junior officer, early 20s, helping out the great General Washington, stayed up late into the night in his tent reading Plutarch's Lives. He was taking notes by the candlelight on the biographies of the founders and lawgivers of Athens, Rome, and Sparta. He actually took notes on Plutarch's lives in the blank pages of his pay ledger, and we still have those. Apparently, his sights were already on bigger things than being a camp aide. So that's one idea. Camp aide is about the rank Sertorius was in that war with the Cimbri when we met him last episode. Like Hamilton, he found his own ways to stand out to his superiors, to cultivate relationships with them. But when we last left him, he was headed for Spain, and he was now at a higher rank in the army and society, and a man like him, who didn't have super rich and famous ancestors and relatives like many of the nobility, if he wanted to become anything more than an obscure Sabine turnip farmer in the eyes of the great and powerful of this world, it was time to make a bold move. It was time to become a leader. I'm Alex Petkus, and you're listening to The Cost of Glory podcast by Ancient Life Coach, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the famous Greeks and Romans in order to sharpen ourselves for the present. We use Plutarch as our guide. This is part two of three of the life of Sertorius. Now, the Romans had been occupying Spain for more than 100 years. Why? Well, it was a dangerous place not to occupy. Long ago, after the First Punic War, Rome's first war against the Carthaginians, a great general of the defeated Carthaginians, they were defeated, not destroyed, well, he had the idea to colonize Spain, mainly along the Mediterranean coast. His goal was to raise money recruit 
ferocious barbarian troops and generally used Spain as a base so that the Carthaginians could inflict some payback on the Romans. So he built up Spain as a kind of permanent beachhead against Rome. That Carthaginian's name was Hamilcar, and he was the father of the great Hannibal, who carried out exactly what his father had planned to do in what became known as the Second Punic War. And even though the Romans eventually defeated Hannibal, his Spanish base strategy was devastatingly effective. It took them more than 20 years to defeat Hannibal. So Spain was hard-won territory for the Romans, and they had to control Spain in order to keep anyone else from using it against them. It was also really rich in silver mines. And in Sertorius's day, it was still a pretty dangerous place. Some of the local tribes were cooperative, some were really not. Now, Sertorius was appointed a military tribune. Military tribune. That's unrelated to the office of tribune of the plebs, which is a little confusing, but now you know. So he's a military tribune, and he answers to the Roman governor of Spain, a proconsul. But Sertorius himself is in charge of a few hundred or so men on his own, relatively independent. And while he was a military tribune in Spain, Sertorius seized an opportunity to show his mettle as a military leader. The governor had stationed his unit inside a walled town, and it was winter. It was a rich town in the hills near some silver mines, which, of course, the Romans were exploiting for themselves. It was called Castulo. And one night, in the dead of night, most of Sertorius's troops were asleep. Well, more accurately, they were passed out drunk. Apparently, they were having a good time. Too good a time. You can imagine what they might get up to in a rich city like Castulo. These were probably permanent troops. They'd been there for a few years. But Sertorius, he was a young guy, maybe on a shorter tour of duty. One historian I've read thinks he may have been called in to institute some discipline. But if so, he hadn't finished his job yet. And these troops were comfortable here. They were having a good time. They were just trying to keep warm, as they say. So on this night, the troops were passed out drunk. But the townsfolk of Castillo were awake. And the Castellonians were really sick of these Romans, these drunkards. They were lodging in their houses, exploiting their land, pushing them around, staring at their women. The townspeople had had enough. They decide they're going to do something about it. So the townspeople secretly invite men from the neighboring town to creep into the city in the middle of the night. They all coordinate and they move in quietly. And then someone gives a signal and they strike. They start murdering Sertorius's soldiers in their sleep. It's a bloodbath. Sertorius, however, was sober. And he pretty much always stayed sober. He was probably a light sleeper. So he and a few men managed to slip away. They escaped the city in the chaos, unnoticed. And he links up with a number of his surviving troops outside the town. They're trying to figure out what to do. And then they notice the Spaniards made a fatal mistake. They were overconfident and they left the gates of Castillo unguarded. They apparently hadn't even considered the possibility that some Romans might escape. So Sertorius and his men secure the city gates. Then they move back into the city quietly, and somehow they manage to take it back. Maybe they caught the enemy and surrounded them in the town square celebrating, or maybe they had to slowly take it back, locking it down street by street, gathering their own survivors. Either way, it's an incredibly bloody night on both sides, but they take it back, and by the end of it, 
basically all the fighting age Spaniards in the city are dead. Now, at this point, the Romans are really lucky to be alive. The soldiers must have been exhausted. So now Sertorius has got to decide, are we done? Mission accomplished? Let's count the dead. And he makes a split decision. He turns to his troops. Now, every one of you, go find a dead Spaniard about your size. And so they disguise themselves in the clothes and armor of the dead Spaniards. And then in the early hours of the morning, at the other town, the men who had remained in the neighboring town, they think they see their comrades approaching. They open up the gates, come out and meet them with a welcoming party, a victory party. They're ready to start uncorking the old wine. And then they realize it's the Romans. And by that time, it was much too late. And that's how Sertorius permanently secured two cities in one night. And as you can imagine, this event really got the tribes in Spain talking. Geez, who was this Sertorius guy? And really, again, what kind of man does that? It would have been very respectable and commendable just to have taken the city back to wait for fuller backup from the governor. But Sertorius saw an opportunity to gain ground when he could have just defended it. He didn't wait for backup. He struck lightning fast without hesitation. And this seems to be the moment where everybody realized this guy is dangerous. And you can bet that they were talking about that among the tribes in Spain. But word also got around about this event to the people in the city in Rome. And when he got back, he decided to run for one of the high offices to become quaestor. And he won. And it helped that he was apparently a pretty good speaker. The young Cicero often saw him speaking and remembered and described it many years later. Sertorius was clever and witty, but he also spoke in a plain and straightforward way that made him seem trustworthy and made him appeal to practical working men. So Sertorius becomes quaestor, and this was his first foothold on that ladder of high Roman achievement, the so-called cursus honorum, the root of honors, or root of offices. Okay, it was the lowest elected office, but it was a start. It's a one-year term. They're all one-year terms. In peacetime, being a quaestor was an administrative job. But another war was brewing, and this time it looked like it could be a big one. And it was way closer to home than anything anybody could remember. Now, to understand the social war, you have to start with the fact that when the Romans were conquering much of the Mediterranean, they had help. They had a really tight network of allied cities and federations all over Italy. Many of these peoples had been allies for centuries, and often they became allies after losing wars to the Romans. But most of these allies were not citizens. They had a lot of privileges that say, the conquered Greeks or Spanish tribes didn't have, but they couldn't vote or hold office in the Roman state. And they were fighting and dying in the same wars. But the Romans were getting most of the upside, and the allies were kind of getting sick of it. They wanted citizenship. Now, many Roman leaders, including some among the populares, remember the sort of reformist champions of the lower classes, they say, hey, that's fair. Let's give them what they want. Bring them into the fold. They propose laws, but the most powerful voices in the Senate block them. 
and the once allied Italians decide they're going to rise up murderously. And this is what came to be called the social war. Social from the word socius, which means ally in Latin. And this social war broke out when Sertorius was 34 in the same year that he became quaestor, 91 BC. And he fights in this war with distinction. The Romans eventually win this war, but it was a very bloody slog for some four years. And the Romans needed all hands on deck because the former allies knew exactly how to fight the Romans, hit them at their weakest points. So this war sees populares like Sertorius fighting alongside optimates like the Metelli. And the Romans finally win. But the way they end up doing it is partly by granting citizenship to any Italians who would fight on their side. So most of the Italians end up getting citizenship anyway, the surviving ones, that is, which is kind of amazing. Couldn't they have saved everyone a lot of trouble by compromising earlier? Well, anyway, it was in this war that Sertorius really arrived in the Roman political scene. Like I said, he fought with distinction. He had to recruit a whole legion of troops in northern Italy when he was quaestor. And then, after his official term of office ended, he stayed on as a subordinate commander. And Sertorius fought Marius style too, Alexander the Great style, not surveying the battle formations from up on some hill, but right there on the front lines with his men. This was the war that he lost his eye in. He had a lot of battle scars, but that one was the one he was most proud of. And after the war, because he had held the requisite offices and had a brilliant military record, he was enrolled as a member of the Senate. And now he was officially a new man, a novus homo, the first man in his family to join the Senate. And because of all this, Sertorius became extremely popular in Rome. He would walk into the theater and they would give him standing ovations. They would cheer his name. This is the sort of treatment that it wasn't easy to get, even if you were a former consul who had triumphed over barbarians. And he looked like the kind of guy who had a brilliant future before him. And you get the sense that some of these older guys were getting a little jealous. And now, once the war is over, in 88 BC, Sertorius, age 37, decides to try to run for the office of Tribune of the Plebs. And there's another big factor here. Marius, his disgraced old commander, who had once been a savior of Rome and then exiled, he's back in town. And the boiling pot of tension at Rome is really starting to rattle again. Now, Marius actually came back out of exile to help with this social war around the time it started. He saw this was a great chance to rehabilitate himself, right when the state needed him the most, maybe. And it worked. He brought an army and he won some important victories. Sertorius ended up fighting under him during the social war. And now, suddenly, by the time the war wrapped up, it looked like Gaius Marius was on the up and up again but a lot of people still didn't want him around. Especially a certain man who was emerging as the new leader of the Optimates faction. Marius was over the hill, but this man was still in his prime, about 50. He was from a famous old family that was 
kind of down on its financial luck when he was born, but he had charmed his way into substantial wealth. He got close to some widows, you know, handsome young man, blonde, chiseled features, piercing gaze. He was funny, too. This man's name was Sulla. Now, Sulla had fought under Marius in Africa and in the Cimbrian Wars, but he had practically made it a point to be a thorn in Marius' side wherever he could in those wars. And now, at the end of the Social War, Sulla had been a hugely successful commander in that war, and he had just landed a very advantageous marriage into the Metelli family. And these people were, as you'll recall, once Marius' old patrons, but now his mortal enemies. So Marius and Sulla have been at odds for years, and it's getting to the point that any friend of Marius was an enemy of Sulla. And now Sertorius was running for tribune of the plebs. This is Sertorius's chance to really build a track record with the Roman people, with the common man, civilians, win their trust, not just be a soldier, but be a peacetime leader too, a lawmaker. And he had gotten to this moment where he was, and he was a sure winner, all pretty much without Marius's help. But he was still a friend of Marius, and Sulla didn't like the look of this. Marius on the rebound, trying to come back as the great man. And now, if Marius has a popular tribune of the plebs at his side, not one of those slick-haired, glad-handing politicians like a Saturninus, but a real soldier like Sertorius, that's too much. So, Sulla forms a cabal and blocks Sertorius. Puts that turnip farmer back in his place. Plutarch doesn't give any details, but you know, there are ways to get this kind of thing done. Who knows, maybe he spread some nasty rumors about him, probably tamper with the ballots. Maybe he did that. Bribe some people, definitely. So Marius, in the end, had really proven to be a liability for Sertorius. Sertorius had always tried to stay out of Marius's squabbles with the nobility, but now friendship with Marius had finally cost Sertorius the tribunate. And so he now had to watch on the sidelines as a private citizen while Marius unfolded the next phase of Marius 2.0, Make Marius Great Again. And this plan would soon culminate in, for the first time ever in more than 600 years of Roman history, Roman armies marching against the city of Rome. Now, how did this disaster happen? Well, Marius has his eyes on a prime military position because there's a new menace on the horizon in the eastern provinces. A former friend of the Romans, a ruler of a neighbor kingdom, neighboring Rome's provinces in Asia Minor. This king decides that the social war was an opportune moment to spearhead a revolt against the Romans. His name was Mithridates, king of Pontus. And we'll talk more about Mithridates when we get to the biographies of Sulla and especially Lucullus. Fascinating figure, and this won't be Mithridates' only appearance in the story of Sertorius. Mithridates makes the first move with a massacre of Roman citizens in his territory. The Romans declare war. Now, Marius thinks that he deserves the supreme command of this war, full charge of the war effort even though he doesn't have any office. And this wasn't uncommon, mind you, if someone had already, say, been consul before. But instead, the Senate awards that job to one of the duly elected consuls that year, and that was 
you guessed it, Sulla. Sulla leaves the city to march on Mithridates, but Marius is still determined to get his way. So what does Marius do? What options does he have if he's determined to lead that war? Well, he takes a page from his old playbook and he goes and finds another one of these radical tribunes of the plebs, these guys who can make up the rules as they go as long as they have a popular mandate because they can directly channel the will of a majority of the people into a law. And the guy's name that he finds is Sulpicius. This guy Sulpicius, very eager to make a deal with Marius. Marius is still popular with the masses. Sulla is some obstructionist from the nobility, a champion of tradition in the eyes of the people, standing in the way of progress. So it's simple enough. Marius has Sulpicius write a law that makes Marius the commander of the Roman forces instead of Sulla. They get it passed easily. They override the Senate. This was kind of shocking, totally against precedent, but still technically legal. Soon, emissaries arrive from Rome at Sulla's camp. He's already in the south of Italy, headed for Greece. Just imagine entering that camp, where Sulla is commanding maybe 20,000 soldiers. Most of these guys are actually veterans that he led to some smashing victories in the social wars. You walk up to Sulla. He's sitting on his general's chair, the consular tribunal, surrounded by his officers. What are you expecting to happen when you deliver that message? Is he going to lay his authority down and step out of the way for old man Marius? Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll get right back to it, but I want to take a moment to acknowledge one of our sponsors today. Some of the most transformative experiences I've had have been when I've had the opportunity to travel to a strange place with someone who really understood its culture and history in a deep way. So I'm really excited to have as a sponsor for this episode a company that does just this sort of thing for classical sites, the kind of places we mention often in the Cost of Glory podcast, places like Athens, Rome, Sicily, southern France, northern Greece. The Paideia Institute is a nonprofit educational company run and staffed by experts in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and they put on world-class tours for groups and individuals. I've been lucky enough to be a guest lecturer on more than one. They also offer online courses in the classical languages, that is Greek and Latin, which I think every English speaker should learn if they have an opportunity. Paideia is the Greek word for education, and the Paideia Institute also runs a number of programs to promote education. They do scholarships, after-school programs, lots of good stuff. Check out their website at paideiainstitute.org. That's P-A-I-D-E-I-A institute.org. Later Romans look back on this moment as Marius really tipping the marble over the edge into a half a century of civil war. But now Sulla still has a choice as to how this is going to play out. And we'll save the full story for later. Those emissaries, though, never made it out of that camp alive. Sulla turns right back around and marches on Rome, forces open the city. A few people die. He forces the Senate to confirm his command, more or less at spear point. And nothing like this had ever happened before. Poor Sulpicius, that eager tribune, he gets whacked. 
Marius narrowly escapes. He flees into exile again. Sulla, though, is not eager to stick around. The pot's really threatening to boil over now, and he wants to start his war with Mithridates. He wants to go win, get rich, and then sort things out when he comes home. So he makes a few pronouncements and gets out of town quickly. The political equivalent of saying, now you're all going to behave yourselves when I'm gone. I'm warning you. He does that, and then he leaves. So Sulla is now gone, but things were not settled at all. And he had set a very ominous precedent by using his army to force his will at Rome. And it was just a matter of time before another Roman army was at the gates of Rome, and things got quite a bit uglier. But this time, Sertorius wasn't on the sidelines. He was one of the lead players. Now, one of the big things causing the lid to really rattle on the pot of Roman politics is that the dissatisfaction that gave rise to the social wars has not been totally settled. After the social war, there was this massive addition of names to the citizen lists. Yes, these disaffected Italians were now technically citizens, but they didn't get what they wanted really either. Even though they had some additional rights on paper, that was nice, but they had been sort of gerrymandered and so thoroughly that their votes barely mattered and they were not happy about it. But one man saw that these new citizens had a legitimate claim, and he saw that anyone who had the skill and power to give them the influence that they arguably deserved, such a man as patron of this new massive Italian voting bloc, he might become the most powerful politician in Rome. And the guy who figured this out and then did something about it his name was Cinna. Now, Cinna was a blue blood from an old family, but very much on the populist side of politics, the populares. And he was one of the new consuls for the year. The other guy, Octavius, was a staunch conservative, an optimate. And of course, everyone knew that advantaging the Italians would disadvantage a lot of powerful senators who had spent generations carefully and strategically building up their political patronage networks so that they could influence the existing electoral system. So these guys were going to try to stop Sinna's plans to disrupt the hard-won status quo. And it was getting to the point now where you almost had to pick a side to stay relevant. Sertorius immediately saw Sinna as the more capable leader among the two consuls, and he made an alliance with him. Besides matters of principle and justice, this was also a chance to salvage the ruins of his political career. And it didn't take long before he got to put his decision to the test. One day, not too far into Cinna's term as consul, there was voting going on in the forum about a new set of laws Cinna was proposing to try to enfranchise the Italians properly. And there were a lot of those new Italians in the city, too. Tensions were high. The other consul was vehemently opposing the proceedings. Many men were clamoring in the Senate House against these laws as well. And this is the moment that Sertorius really started down that path of eventually becoming a famous rebel because he was there in the forum on that day and... Somehow, it's not clear who started it, 
Cinna would blame the Optimates, of course, who knows. But somehow, a fight broke out. A big one. Picture Times Square filled with angry men, shoulder to shoulder, and it was said that a lot of these people had actually shown up that day with concealed weapons. So guys with weapons from both factions showed up ready for a fight. Clubs, blades, like thousands of wood chips, and someone threw a spark in there. Maybe it started with an elbow, harsh words, a shove, who knows. So a fight breaks out. But this wasn't just a normal riot in the forum, because once the fight started, the consul Octavius led a heavily armed and organized group of men into the forum and cracked down on the brawl with military-grade force. And by the end of the day, Octavius held the forum, and there were hundreds of dead bodies strewn about the heart of the city, maybe thousands. And Sertorius and Cinna and their party escaped outside the city for refuge. But they aren't going to give up on their cause that easily. Cinna and Sertorius and their allies go on a blitz recruiting campaign. They go all over Italy. They gather up new troops, many of them from the newly enlisted Italians. And they rendezvous at Rome within a couple of months at the head of a powerful army. And now they have the clear advantage. The men controlling the city are surrounded outnumbered militarily. Sulla is off east, halfway to Persia. He's out of the picture. Now, up to this point, we've continually seen Sertorius playing the subordinate commander to senior men. But now, finally, around age 38, well, of course you could wish for better circumstances, but is this finally the chance he has to play a dominant role, to run operations like he knows they ought to be run? Well, who shows up on the horizon now but his old commander, Gaius Marius. Dirty, long, scraggly hair, he's portly, half-crazed, and he's leading a horde of mostly peasants and slaves he's just freed, and he's calling it his army. He came to, you know, lend a hand if it was needed, just a private citizen, just a patriot, Sertorius pulls Cinna aside, and they have a parley. There's a back and forth. Sertorius is saying, Cinna, we can't give this guy any authority. He's unhinged. He's vengeful. He's been discredited. I mean, look at him. We don't even need him. And Cinna is saying, like, yeah, I know, but it's Gaius Marius, man. People still believe in that name. And Sertorius says, this is a terrible idea. Don't do this. And Cinna kind of hesitates. Well, uh, I kind of invited him. And at this point, Sertorius says with characteristic professionalism, basically, well, why did you even waste our time with this conversation? If you made a promise to Gaius Marius, there's no room for discussion. And Cinna is the consul. It's ultimately his call. So they divide the army in three among them. And... This was a very fateful choice on Cinna's part, and maybe Sertorius's too. You know, you wonder if Sertorius still could have actually done something to block Marius. And if so, maybe his scrupulous observation of propriety actually ended up doing a great deal of harm. Because 
Gaius Marius was brought on, theoretically, as a subordinate to Cinna, but the other two men were no match for Marius in status or sheer force of personality. There was no triumvirate here. This was now Marius's show. And so Cinna, Sertorius, and Marius, they set about taking back control of the city by force. They employ the siege and cut off supplies method. And there are a couple of battles. Sertorius fights a man named Pompeius Strabo, Pompey Strabo, in an engagement outside the north gate of the city. And after a battle lasting all day, 600 men dead on each side, he defeats them. He defeats Pompey Strabo. You wonder, though, what was going on in Sertorius's head as he's battling his own countrymen. He may have thought, wasn't so different from what Sulla had done, wasn't so different from what Octavius had done. Cinna's people had legitimate claims and they'd suffered serious injustices. But does that make this all right? Would his father have been proud if he could see his son now? Well, after Pompey Strabo was dealt with, Cinna's forces quickly brought the city to surrender. And then the three generals entered. And now Marius has them all at last where he wants them. He spent so many years quietly nursing his resentment for one last hope of glory to see it dashed before his eyes. And he's just gotten back from yet another, even more shameful exile. And at this point, he's genuinely showing signs of dementia. But he locks the city down and now he's got absolute power and he starts settling scores. And he does this with the cold, merciless hatred of a proud old man with nothing to lose. And this is what Sertorius was afraid of. Marius has dozens of prominent men of the Senate rounded up and executed. Cinna at first takes the opportunity to eliminate some enemies too. And there are a lot of vivid, tragic stories about these events. Sometimes there were show trials, sometimes not even that. One senator's slaves hid him away, actually. They found one of the many dead bodies lying around. They jammed a gold ring on the finger and hanged the corpse and faked their master's suicide. So they saved him. Others, though, were not so lucky. Lutatius Catullus, former consul, famous orator, author of a particular funeral oration that Cicero admired. It was actually the first ever made in honor of a woman, Catullus's mother. Catullus, who had been Marius's colleague in the Cimbrian Wars, ridden in the chariot with him at that triumphal parade. Catullus had fallen out of favor with Marius. The dreaded order went out from Marius's throne. Catullus's friends came and interceded, Marius, spare Catullus. And Marius's reply was two words, must die. Catullus decided to seal himself up in a room and light a big charcoal fire. He chose to suffocate himself instead of facing a kangaroo court as his way to go. Mark Antony's grandfather, also named Marcus Antonius, he was a great orator, an optimate. He pleaded with his executioners, for God's sake, use some restraint for the sake of the Republic. He was slaughtered in mid-sentence. But Sertorius did restrain himself. He didn't lift a finger against any of the people that had wronged him. All it would have taken is a wave of the hand. But 
He was disgusted by all of this, and he had warned Cinna too. He even confronted Marius about it, which was useless, but he did finally manage to talk Cinna down from some of his own excesses. And even Cinna had to admit that he was disturbed by how far things had gone. There was no accountability for opportunists who were taking advantage of the situation. Moreover, some of Marius's troops, this undisciplined rabble of mostly freed slaves that Marius brought into the city, they had started crossing the line. They were looting the homes of dead men, violating their families, outrages against wives and children. Someone had to restore order and accountability. So late one night, with Cinna's permission, Sertorius stations his troops around the makeshift camp of Marius's most murderous and opportunistic thugs. And on Sertorius's order, the troops move in and shoot down every single one of them with javelins. Marius was unfazed, though. He exultantly had himself elected, so to speak, consul for the seventh time. But he was so worn out from all of his recent trials and exertions, and all that at some 70 years of age, that he died within a month or so of being elected. Our sources also indicate that he basically drank himself to death, which maybe suggests that deep down he still had a conscience that bothered him about what he had unleashed. That was 86 BC. After that, things calmed down in the city, at least on the surface. Cinna became the dominant figure at Rome. He managed to put his friends into key offices, but he was no tyrant. It wasn't a reign of terror. You know, court cases went on, laws were passed and assemblies. Some of Cinna's opponents won elections, though it was mostly to minor offices. But Cicero looked back on this time and called it Triennium Sine Armis, a three-year period without violence. I mean, there were certainly problems to solve, big ones. A major debt crisis, rising inflation, a steep drop-off in tax revenues from the provinces. And Cinna and his colleagues passed many reforms to try to relieve these issues. And they had wide cooperation from the Senate. So life cautiously went on. And young Cicero in these days would go to the forum and the courts. He would hear the great men speaking, seeing what he could learn from them. This is around the time that he must have seen Sertorius speaking and recalled it later on and wrote about it. And it's around this time, the year 86, Sertorius probably had a few interactions with Julius Caesar. Young Julius actually married Cinna's daughter, Cornelia, which was very precocious on his part because he was maybe 16 and Sertorius was probably at that wedding celebration and even then Caesar a kid from a very good family not a tip-top family but a respectable patrician one in the senate even at that age Caesar had kind of picked his side he was a man of the people a populares guy Sertorius was elected praetor for one of these years a junior generalship second in rank only to a consul. So this was promising. But Cinna was a politician. He led a broad coalition, and he was placating former rivals. He was trying to draw on patronage and political networks of some of the great families. And so military competence was not the only criterion he had to judge his promising associates by. And military competence was the main thing on Sertorius's resume after he had missed out on that Tribune of the Plebs opportunity. So Cinna couldn't afford to promote him too much or too quickly at the expense of the great 
blue blood families and their sophisticated sons. The main problem with this, as Sertorius probably saw it, was that it increasingly looked like the only solution to the stalemate between Cinna's faction and Sulla's faction would be a military one. Sulla was still in the east, succeeding in his war efforts, gaining power, winning treasures, training his troops into an elite fighting force. Many senators had fled to him in the midst of the purge that Marius initiated. So letters would go out from the Senate in Rome to Sulla, from prominent citizens pleading with Sulla to come to some sort of an agreement, some sort of a truce, urging him to observe moderation when he returned. But Sulla had heard the stories. He had heard about his allies and dear friends being murdered. His wife and children had narrowly escaped the city. His house had been burnt down. He wrote back, thanks for the advice, but I know how to handle things when I return. Sulla had powerful allies. One of the younger men of the Metelli clan was raising up a pro-Sulla army in Africa, and a young Crassus, the future triumvir, was doing the same thing in transalpine Gaul. A big storm was brewing, and this time it wasn't going to be a spontaneous flash in the pan. It was thoroughly premeditated. And in 85 BC, they got news that Sulla had finished his war with Mithridates and was now making plans to return to Italy. Cinna decided to try to take the war to him on the soil of Greece before Sulla could get to Italy. But early the next year, as he was managing the troop convoys going across the Adriatic Sea from Italy, Cinna got into a scuffle with some soldiers in his camp. Morale was really low, they were looking for a fight, and the scuffle turned fatal and Cinna was killed by some of his own men. And after his death, this was really a fluke, by the way, well, Sulla saw his moment. He broke off all negotiations and moved fast to return to Italy. And this is one of these great questions of history. What would have happened if the Romans, when they were faced with one of the most brilliant politician generals they'd ever seen, what if Cinna had been alive or what if one of the men left behind had mustered the will or the courage or the presence of mind or political capital to place the military command in the hands of the most competent man on their side to probably the only man who could outmaneuver Sulla? And maybe the remaining leaders of Cinna's faction can be excused because they hadn't really seen what Sertorius was capable of yet. Either way, with Cinna dead... Sertorius didn't really have a patron who believed in him, who could get him into a position of true leadership right when the Republic needed him most. And so, the crucial war effort was pursued in a manner sort of resembling a decapitated octopus. The last thing you want against a powerful, sharp, unified enemy is vagueness, indecisiveness, multiple centers of decision-making. But that's exactly what the Roman Senate now had. The two consuls who ended up getting elected for the year 83 were fine politicians. One of them was a new man, a senior guy in the Popularis party. The other consul was named Scipio, a great name. He was the great-great-grandson of Scipio Africanus's brother. 
So they were good speakers, well-connected, but nobody would mistake these guys for real soldiers. But these were the men who were tasked with defending Rome and the reformist Senate from the coming reactionary menace of Sulla. And now Sulla crossed over the Adriatic Sea into Italy from Greece unopposed. And when the armies were finally mobilized, Sertorius had to play the subordinate commander, a legate, to old Scipio. You know, the first great Roman civil war is not a pleasant story to hear. It's very bloody and depressing. And maybe we'll give it more time in other biographies. But to put it shortly, the consul Norbanus was sluggish. He let Sulla get an easy foothold consolidate his forces in southern Italy. So Sulla took the initiative there. When they were on campaign in the south, Sertorius tried to warn Scipio, don't negotiate with Sulla. Don't let him get too close. He has a history of getting Roman troops to change sides. He's already done this in Asia. Scipio wouldn't listen. Sulla managed to steal Scipio's entire army right out from under him during negotiations. But Sertorius didn't give up. He sped off to northern Italy, to Etruria, modern Tuscany. He raised up four legions worth of new troops, very short order, at least 16,000 men. That's a very impressive number for such a short time. Then he hurried back to Rome to run for consul in 82. And instead, the Senate backed an aristocrat who had been one of Cinna's right-hand men, a guy named Papirius Carbo, this was his third consulship. Carbo, another great speaker with very little demonstrated military capability. And the other guy that the power brokers helped get elected was, get this, the 27-year-old Gaius Marius Jr. Yes, that's the playboy son of the great man who never held a serious office before. And then Sertorius was understandably pretty exasperated at this point, and he actually stood up in the Senate House and berated them all. He told them how they were grossly underestimating Sulla. They were trying to buy time with negotiations, wait for the right moment. There were excuses like, ah, we're raising money and troops in the North. Some of these guys were probably trying to hedge their bets. Maybe they would get off easy if Sulla captured the city. Sertorius said to the Senate, if we don't consolidate our forces and strike at Sulla directly now, this war is already over. And so the two consuls, shocked at the insolence of this upstart Sabine, this ranting, one-eyed, strong man who clearly didn't understand the nuances of politics, they say, you know where the Republic could use a man of your talents? Spain. And so as a reward for his unsolicited advice and his irritating contempt for social status, they send him off with a handful of soldiers to be governor of a faraway province that was currently irrelevant, so he could clash with those barbarians. And if they were hoping they'd never see him again, most of them were right. And so Sertorius marched out of Rome in the dead of winter, in early 82 BC, headed west for Spain. He didn't have much hope for the resistance in Rome, but he did now have something that was even more precious to him than titles and honors. For the first time in his life, he finally had a truly independent command. 
It was not in the kind of circumstances he had hoped for, and he didn't have that many troops, but now he was truly the master of his own fate like never before. Sertorius, though, was only commanding one legion, maybe 4,000 men, and so his first objective getting into Spain was to raise more troops for the war effort with Sulla. He was good at this, but for several reasons it was going to be a lot harder to raise troops in Spain than it had been in Italy, and every minute counted. First of all, it was not easy to get into Spain. There were snowstorms in the Pyrenees, the mountains between Spain and France, and he faced some resistance in the mountain passes from the natives. They were extorting payment. His officers scoffed at this. Don't pay these chumps, let's take them. But Sertorius bought them off. He said, to a general engaged in a contest for supremacy, nothing is more valuable than time. Next, he had to face a couple of pro-Sulla commanders that had been left there by the former governor, who was also a pro-Sulla man. These guys weren't commanding huge armies, but they were more than he could handle on his own. And so Sertorius started his first experiment with a strategy that in his hands would later prove to be devastating. In order to defeat his Roman adversaries, he decided to go Hannibal on them. He turned to the natives. Now, Sertorius knew from experience what the typical pattern was for Roman commanders in Spain. The Senate's attitude towards provincial governors around this time was pretty laissez-faire. A governor could, for example, start by extracting too many taxes, then judge disputes too arbitrarily, punish too severely, and then when the locals fight back, he could just go and complain to the Senate that, oh, these barbarians hate Rome, there's an uprising, and then, you know, maybe they would send him another legion for him to command, and he could return with plunder, and who knows, maybe get a triumph. So Sertorius knew he had to do something pretty different from that, and he formulated a different strategy. He sends word around, first off, that as the new legitimate governor, he's going to cut taxes for the provincials. You might think he would have wanted the money, but really at this point, he needs friends a lot more than money. That's the way he saw it, at least. And in the area that he's near, on the northeast coast, they are a Celtic group. The Celtiberians is what they're called. And Sertorius is no snob. He's happy to make friends with barbarians, especially Celts. And he also ends the unpopular practice of having Roman soldiers quartering inside the towns of the locals. He had learned firsthand that that policy was not sustainable on that one bloody night in Castello. And so even now, in the harsh winter, his troops camp outside the walls where they're stationed. So these measures make him extremely popular with the Spaniards practically overnight. And a lot of them remember his name, too, from that shocking double city capture that he pulled off a few years ago. They know the kinds of things that he's capable of. Probably they're still a little bit afraid of him. So now his earlier ruthlessness pays off and he can be the nice guy. So pretty soon he's able to persuade the Spaniards to give troops willingly to his cause. But now... They aren't just subjects grudgingly sending forced conscripts. They aren't mercenaries. They're allies and friends. And so once he's mobilized a new native Celt-Iberian army with lightning speed 
to complement his regular Roman forces, he takes on the pro-Sulla commanders and, within a few months, he has kicked them out and secured his province. But as another winter was setting in, around December of that year, Sertorius gets word that Sulla has decisively won. He has taken the city in a huge battle and is now unopposed. And the reports arriving at Spain from Rome must have seemed incredible. Both consuls were dead. In Rome, scores of leading senators and literally thousands of equestrians, that's Rome's second wealthiest class, they had had their names written up on placards, posted in the forum for all to see. It was called proscription. Marius's murders had seemed capricious and arbitrary, unpredictable, but Sulla was systematic. He made a tidy list, and every man whose name was on that list had a bounty on his head. And the penalty for aiding or hiding anyone on the list was also death. And soon, the forum was decorated with the decapitated faces of many of the most famous and wealthiest citizens of the day. The list kept growing over time, too. But Sertorius was, of course, on that list from day one. Sulla became dictator, a tyrant with no term limit. This was bad. Pretty soon, Sulla sent out to Spain Sertorius's replacement, so to speak, with a huge army. The new pro-Sulla governor cuts through the Pyrenees easily. Somehow he's able to get Sertorius's lieutenant, who was holding those passes, murdered. And this just got much worse. Now, Sertorius is brave, but he's no fool. He doesn't have the manpower to take on this new guy, whose name is Aeneas. Sertorius tells his Spaniard allies to melt away into the hills, and he gathers what's left of his legion, and they take to the sea. They're headed for Africa. And their ships make first landfall somewhere in what's now northern Morocco. And as they're forging for supplies, filling up their water jugs, they get ambushed by an army of locals who kill some of them. Sertorius managed to get most of his men back into their boats, and they sail off. And now they find out Aeneas has sent a fleet to hunt them down. Now at this point, what's going on in the minds of those men that are following Sertorius as they rock up and down on those waves? What are they thinking? A lot of them must be thinking, how did I get stuck with this guy? Why didn't I end up in one of Sulla's armies with the winners? I could be in Italy now, on a big farm, living off the fat of the land, a Roman citizen. What a fool I am. I wonder if we're going to die at sea or die as soon as we reach land. Which would be better? And you've got to imagine, Sertorius is kind of thinking the same thing. And he's wondering, what am I going to say to these people? Where are we going to go now? And he must have heard about what happened to the former consul Norbanus at this point. Norbanus escaped to the island of Rhodes after Sulla crushed his army. Norbanus was probably thinking, I'll raise money and raise troops to fight Sulla. But then Sulla took absolute control of Rome. And Norbanus took what he thought maybe was the most honorable choice. He committed suicide. Sertorius must have thought about it many times. Maybe he should just roll over and die and save everyone the trouble. 
But it's at that point that they see, coming up on the horizon, a fleet of Cilician cruisers. Cilician cruisers. Uh-oh. Yes, it's pirates. Well, good. Maybe he won't have to do the deed himself. They can just put him out of his misery for him. But it turns out that these pirates were looking specifically for Sertorius, not to plunder him, but to join him in challenging the power of Rome. And now, once again, Sertorius decides he's going to live and fight. Hope you enjoyed part two of three of The Life of Sertorius. Join us next time for the final showdown between two of the most talented military commanders that ever fought under Roman eagles, Sertorius and Pompey. That's when we'll see some of the strategic and tactical fireworks that made Sertorius famous. But already in this episode, there's a lot for students of the OG School of Excellence to consider. Sertorius maintained his cool when he saw little opportunity in the political sphere. He was biding his time. But when the moment counted, he acted with resolution and an iron will to survive. And also, something we see in a lot of successful commanders is a willingness to be brutal in their justice in their earlier careers. And fear is a powerful weapon in situations requiring pure force. But this also makes it easier for them to be merciful later on, to inspire love or admiration, which in most situations is even more useful. And men admire most strongly those leaders who can also inspire fear if they choose. You see this pattern with Pompey, Caesar, Napoleon, and Sertorius as well. If you liked this and want to find out more or get involved, visit our website at ancientlifecoach.com. We have a weekly encouragement we send out via email based on the wisdom of ancient Greek and Roman culture and philosophy. You can sign up at the website. And don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you think the show merits it, leave a good review. Till next time, this is Alex Petkus.